I want to start this morning by asking a question as we look today at the story of Stephen from Acts chapter 6 and 7. The question I have for you is, how do we respond, how do you respond to the possibility of dying because you are a follower of Jesus? Just sort of start with a light question this morning, you know, something to cheer us all up. Now, most of us, if we were asked the question, we really don't think about dying for our faith, if we're honest. It's something that I just don't think figures into our calculations of our personal saving faith in Jesus. And if we did, I reckon it'd be so theoretical because it's so far away from our experience here in Australia. So unless you've been planning to go to Somalia, Nigeria or Yemen as a missionary, then I don't think that dying for our faith really ever comes into our thinking even though thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians have actually died for their faith as martyrs each and every year since Stephen. I heard this week a stat that an estimated 2.3 billion Christians have died for their faith throughout Christianity. But yet, here in comfortable Australia, I don't think we really think about dying for our faith. And I'm so glad that we live in a country that values freedom of religion, that we don't have to be concerned about someone coming in here and killing us simply because we are Christians. Praise Jesus. (laughs) But maybe alongside the question of how do you respond to the possibility of dying because you are a follower of Jesus, we might need to add this to connect that with us today. Are we willing to live for Jesus? You know, maybe the question is a bit theoretical about dying, but are you even willing to live for Jesus? Maybe more to the point, maybe we need to ask the question, what am I living for? Now, if we were to go out for lunch after the service today, and I asked you the question, what story, what driving narrative is sort of driving your life and what are you living for? What's the vision that is driving or compelling your life? what would your answer be? You see, we're all living according to a vision and a story that drives our life. And we see story and narrative and vision drive organizations and companies and political parties. We see vision driving groups towards great things all the time. And we see vision being cast by leaders to garner support and create energy and momentum towards a new outcome. We see this on our TV screens and in the media and advertising. Um, They're all selling a vision that drives them and hopefully they're hoping drives us as well. And most recently we saw this in the election. We saw the media and the Labour Party sharing their vision um, and then we also saw Scott Morrison sharing his vision and the one that resonated with more of the country was the one shared by Scott Morrison. And so we see that vision, you know, and, and, and you know, selling what the, the, the version of the good life that, that you want is being cast in our society all the time. And you know what? In the coming months ahead, we as a church, we are going to be seeking God's will as we open ourselves to hearing his vision for our church. And we'll be going on this journey together to discern his will and discern his vision that will guide and shape the future of our church for the next three to five years. And I'm really looking forward to going through that journey together because vision is a powerful thing. And we see it all the time. Our nation has this story. Our nation has this vision. We've all heard of the Australian dream. This is most often being talked about by achieving ownership of your own home. That's the Australian dream. That's the vision that is adopted as a, as a nation. And every nation 
Every culture, every organization, and every person is living their life in light of a story, their particular vision of what matters most in this life. And whatever story you and I are living for, whatever narrative or vision of the good life that drives us, that has so captured our hearts that it compels us, shapes us, it ultimately controls us. Whatever controls us is actually our Lord. None of us control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And whatever Lord controls your life is who or what you are living for and that by which we're willing to die for. We've heard it in culture. We hear it in culture all the time. And deep down, we actually know that this is true about ourselves. There is a story. There is a narrative. There is a vision that is driving our lives. So if this is true, we all have a Lord over our lives that guides our actions, our energy, our thinking and our direction, that controls us and shapes us. The real question we need to ask is, how can we really know who or what is controlling us? How can we really know the story or the Lord of our lives? How can we really know who or what is shaping our lives? And so I've got a few questions that I just want us to quietly ponder on uh, to think about you know who or what is controlling your life the first one is early on in your conversations with people what do you want to make sure people know about you you know those first five minutes you know those things that you're you're just itching for people to know about yourself things that are so central to your identity what preoccupies you you know what do you daydream about when you're alone where does your mind go effortlessly you know it's been said that what a man does in his solitude is really his religion. What do you do in solitude? What makes you feel the most self-worth? You know, what are you the most proud of in your life, in your past? For what do you want to be known? What, if you failed at it or lost it, would cause you to feel like you wouldn't want to keep on living? That, That thing that is so central to your identity and life, what is that? What do you worry about the most? You know, what brings you the most anxiety? What do you look to for comfort when things go bad or get difficult? What goal or desire unreached would seriously make you consider turning away from God? So these are really helpful questions that help us get at the heart of what the driving narrative and the true Lord of our life really is. Martin Lloyd once said that the true Lord of our life is anything that holds such a controlling position in your life or mind that it moves and rouses and attracts us so easily that we give our time, our attention, that we give our energy and that we give our money to it effortlessly. We don't even think about it. And what we're going to see in Acts chapters 6 and 7 through the life and example of Stephen is a beautiful and forceful witness of the one story and the one Lord that is ultimately worth living and if need be dying for. So let's pick up where we left off last week which was Acts chapter 6 verse 7. So if you've got your Bibles let's go there. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, Luke didn't throw the story of Stephen in there just as some sort of random bonus inspirational story. Right? It's actually really pivotal because his life and death is intricately connected to the overall story of the book of Acts and its teachings. See, it becomes an actual pivot point for the whole book as it goes from just the Jerusalem witness of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 
to the rest of the world. You know, and so we remember in Acts chapter 1 to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. This is the pivot point that we start seeing the witness of Jesus Christ leaving Jerusalem. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. And it's really interesting to note that Stephen was the first person that's been recorded to do great signs and wonders other than the apostles. See, he he was also Greek-speaking. And so we see the impact of the gospel and the story of Jesus now spreading outside of the Hebrew Jew. Continuing on in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen, as it was called. So these were freed slaves. So they had been slaves and they were now freed. So it's this synagogue, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So the picture we're getting of Stephen is that he is full of grace. He is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom, of good repute, full of the Spirit. And here we see that he's doing signs and wonders and is such a powerful proclaimer of the witness of Jesus Christ that they don't know what to do with him. Stephen was a powerful leader in the church. And so when we see him martyred, it's not just some obscure, fringe-dwelling follower of Jesus we see being martyred and, and then coming to actually be central in the book of Acts. No, before he was killed, he was already a powerful and a great leader of the church. And he was, he was also a figurehead among those chosen to serve. And, and if we look at Stephen's story, we actually see echoes um, of, of him being like Jesus. See, because he was treated like Jesus was treated. And, and where things happen to Jesus, they seem to happen to Stephen again and again as well. One of those is that his ministry was so powerful that his critics became so frustrated that they went behind the scenes. And in verse 11, it says this, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And so we see this sort of mob scene develop where they grab Stephen and they're mad because they don't know how to talk to him in a way that makes them look better than him because he's full of wisdom in the spirit. And they produce false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. See, this reminds me of Moses, you know, how his face glowed after he met with God. And even more, it reminds me of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he shone. Now, this is the imagery that you get from this passage. But they stirred up false witness and they brought false accusations against him, basically saying that he was speaking against the four holy pillars of Israel's faith, blaspheming God, speaking about Moses and the law and the temple. And these are big deals to be speaking about in the nation of Israel. They were the foundation stones, if you like, to their story and what they were living out of. And they're eerily similar to the accusations that were brought against Jesus. And so it seems that yet again, we have the life of Jesus back on trial through Stephen in Jerusalem. And the charges against Stephen are of him teaching a different religion, teaching a different Lord. 
and teaching a, a different story of salvation. And the high priest hears this, who was the most powerful person in the land. It was the highest court of the nation that Stephen is standing in front of. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Now, I don't know about you, but I quite like movies and TV shows where there's a bit of courtroom drama. Do you like them? I mean, you think of some examples, I, I can think of them quite easily. I mean, the great Australian classic movie, Castle, The Castle, right, ends with a great courtroom drama. I even like other movies like uh, A Few Good Men, that were, I think with Cuba Gooding Jr. in it, that was really good. And even ones uh, like, I don't know, Aaron Brockovich, that was fairly courtroomy type drama. And even TV shows like the Netflix special Making a Murderer, man, that captivated me. And um, even, you know, back in the day, I used to even like watching things like Jag, you know, a bit of courtroom here and there. <clears throat> Maybe not Legally Blonde, but you get my drift. And what we have here in Acts chapter 7 is one of the best courtroom scenes in history. See, they drag this guy who is full of power and wisdom and they accuse him of something that's false. And his response, it's brilliant. So brilliant that you're going to have to go home and read it all because I don't have time today to go through it. And so Acts chapter 7 verses 2 through 50 that's only 48 verses. That's fine. Read it this week. Go home, read it, and, and so you can, you, can, you can see the response that Steve, Stephen gives. And he gives this response in the form of a sermon. And what he does is he takes the accusations that are against him and, and preaches a sermon where he tells, where he takes the story of Israel. He takes the salvation story of the Old Testament, the very thing that is driving the storyline of those who are accusing him, and he takes their story and he shows them how they've actually got their own story wrong. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Because they've misunderstood Jesus. It is a brilliant courtroom scene. And he tells them, that actually, you know what? They were the ones living out the wrong story. They were the blasphemous ones because they, just like their forefathers before them, had rejected the true Lord. I, as I said, I wish I had time to unpack every point he makes. And you know what? He even gets cut off in the middle. I'm so disappointed. I would have loved to have heard the rest of what he might have been said, might have said. But maybe go out for a friend this, this week and have a coffee and, and read through it together and, and to talk about it. Or with your spouse, you know. But I want to point out a few of the highlights. Because he starts with Abraham, because Abraham's the start of God's people and the nation of Israel. He talks about the patriarchs and Joseph. He talks about the Exodus, about Moses and the law. And he ends up talking about the temple, the very things he's been accused of speaking against. And he recounts to them the story of salvation in such a way that points out to his accusers that because of their misunderstanding and their rejection of Jesus, they have actually misunderstood their own story. It's a really brilliant scene. In essence, Stephen's defensive is this. Because I understand Jesus, I understand your story better than you. Because I understand Moses pointed us towards Jesus, because I understand that Jesus is the true fulfillment of the law, because I understand that Jesus and now us as his people are the true temple of God where heaven and earth meet, I'm the one that is actually living in accord with the story of Israel and her God and you are not. Wow, talk about drama. 
and they all saw the error of their thinking. They came to an understanding of Jesus and, and were repented and carried Stephen off as a hero through the crowds of people cheering in the streets. That, that's the Hollywood ending, isn't it? That's what you would have seen in Legally Blonde or The Castle, right? Unfortunately, the, the reality was actually very different. And we must not lose the drama of this moment for us because what Stephen is telling the religious leaders is something that's still very relevant and confrontational for you and for me right now so he's saying the story that you're living for whatever it is it's incomplete and therefore misshaped and is the wrong story without Jesus as the center of it see it was true for them and it's true in our lives too if the story you're living for whether it's religious like these devout Jews or irreligious, if it does not have Jesus at the center of it, it is misshaped and it is the wrong story. It's not the story to live for. It's not the Lord to live for. And so one of the responsibilities we have as a church family is to actually encourage and exhort one another uh, generally and day by day to keep Jesus as the Lord and the center of our story this should be a constant flavor in our relationships in our conversations in our marriages is jesus the center of our story and so for our retirees what does it look like for jesus to be at the center of your retirement plan for our empty nesters what does it mean for jesus to be at the center of your now empty and quiet home for those in the workplace or studying how does jesus connect to your vocation how does your faith and your work and your study integrate is jesus the center of your story is he your lord if not then our story no matter how religious will be misshaped and so stephen accuses his accusers of doing the exact thing that he is standing trial for he's not subtle about it you see he is bold, just like the apostles have been praying for and speaking. He's picked that right up and he is bold. And his accusation is that they have destroyed the temple. They have disobeyed the law. They have changed the message of Moses. And by killing Jesus, they, not him, they are the ones that, like their ancient forefathers who have not only blasphemed God, but actually murdered his son. So we see this in very plain language in verses 51 through 53. And imagine that you are one of the religious leaders who have accused Stephen and he's speaking to you. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it and stephen here he finishes with a call to repentance you know this isn't just stephen giving a great speech you know in the courtroom he's saying to them you're missing it just like they missed it Here's a second chance. And so what's implicit in his message here is a message saying, come back to the Lord. You're being disobedient. Stop resisting the Spirit of God. Stop being stiff-necked and stubborn of heart. Come back to God. He's being gracious and calling them to repentance. Yet sadly, his appeal 
It does not lead his accusers to repentance. It doesn't humble them because they've rejected and murdered Jesus and they're living out of a misshaped story. It just enrages them more. It's like when you're in an argument and someone tells you to calm down. Does that work? Has it ever worked? You know, it's like when someone's really, really mad and you put a cape on them, so now that they're super mad. You know, it's like what, what he, that's like what he does to them here. You know, and so we see their response in, in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Anyone ever done that to you? So this is what, what happened. They're so enraged that they can't do anything but bare their teeth, gnash their teeth at him. I haven't been in arguments that are that furious before. Praise God I, and pray I won't. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this might seem a bit random, but Jesus in his own trial said that he was going to be at the right hand of the Father. And so what Stephen sees is a validation that Jesus is who he says he is. And more than that, what he sees is a picture of Jesus next to the Father, ruling and reigning with all authority as the judge. And so as he is being mistreated and judged wrongly, his Lord is right there. How encouraging for those who are being persecuted. Jesus is our judge. He is at the right hand of the Father and all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the people that were accusing him, they knew in that moment that they were just judged. Because their response to, to that vision is this. As they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. What a heavy scene. You know, a mob in sheer anger drags Stephen out picks up rocks and throw them at him until he's dead. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, his two prayers here recall Jesus' dying words from the cross and his earlier prayer for the forgiveness of those responsible for his death. See, Stephen responds with such a gracious heart right to his very brutal end. And it is this moment that is the turning point in the book of Acts. You know, it's the catalyst for the church multiplying, causing Christians to scatter under persecution, and but taking with them the message of Christ. See, because of Stephen and the way the Lord used him and the persecution that followed, the gospel will go out to Judea, it will go out to Samaria, and it will go out to the ends of the earth. But what does Stephen's life and his death teach us? There is only one story, the gospel, and there is only one Lord who's really worth living and dying for. Is that the story you are living out of is jesus your lord you see stephen's life has a lot of parallels to jesus they were both falsely accused they were both taken out of the city they both prayed for forgiveness for the people who were doing horrendous things to them and they both suffered a brutal death but jesus death is fundamentally diff unlike stephen's or anybody else's because jesus didn't just die as gandhi once said to be a good example jesus death was substitutionary and he bought and purchased more 
than just a good example. Jesus died to save us from sin. Jesus is the true Lord that died so we could be saved from lesser lords and lesser stories and be saved from our stiff necks and our resistance to the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you're not living out of the story of his gospel, if you have a false Lord and a false story, the invitation is, just like Stephen gave, to deny your other Lords, to forsake that other story and to transfer your hope and your trust and your salvation from whatever else you're living for besides Jesus, to transfer that to him. And he stands ready to save us today. He stands ready to receive us. You see, he loves us. He says, come follow me. Come join the story I have purchased for you. And let me be the Lord that I already am over you, whether you realize it or not. Come see, like Stephen learned, that my steadfast love, it's better than even life. So if you, for the first time today, have connected with the story of Jesus and want to adopt him as Lord, then as I pray, why don't you pray with me? And then afterwards, just come up and have a chat with me and say, look, that was me. God was speaking to me. And maybe if you felt that you've been living for another Lord, you know, you've loved Jesus like I have for a long time, but maybe at the moment you've been living for another Lord. Maybe today is that opportunity for you to repent of that and to come back and live with Jesus as Lord. See, I don't know what's happened in your life. You may have been hurt by the church. You may have been hurt by your fellow brothers and, and sisters in Christ. It happens to us all. And maybe that's made you think, maybe this God is not worth it. Maybe living for the Lord of my own life, my own choices, maybe... Maybe me as Lord is actually a good idea. But you know that that's that's shallow. You know that that's not going to bring salvation to your life. You know, when you stand and are called to account in the in the final days and, and, and Jesus is right there in front of God the Father and, and judgment is coming upon you, is he going to say, I know this person. This per- I love this person. I, I died for this person. You know, are, are we going to live with him as Lord of our life? You know, the first question I asked was, are you prepared to die for Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that many times we live by a different Lord and we fail to fully submit our whole lives to you as Lord. Today we repent of our failures and we willingly submit to your grace and your mercy as the loving Lord of our life. Lord, plant within us your vision for our lives and your vision for our future. May we stand firm in your story of the gospel. Lord, may your spirit continue to guide us and shape our lives to more fully submit to your rule and reign. And may we live empowered by the spirit to be full of your grace and your power like Stephen and be a witness. And Lord, we ask, may you be planting and establishing the seeds of your vision for our church and our future together with each person here. We ask that by your grace and mercy, your vision for us would become known. And as we journey towards receiving your vision, may we walk in humility and submission to you. And for those who may have connected with you as Lord for the first time today, Lord, I thank you for again showing your love and showing your grace and mercy that Lord, whilst we were still as you died for us. And so, Lord, we, we firmly establish and plant you as Lord of our life today, both, both personally and corporately as a church. Lord, we are willing to live for you. Lord, your story is our story. Your story of, your salva- of the salvation you offer for us. Lord, we claim as our story. And Lord, help us live out of that story today. Amen.